<clears throat> well, howdy, folks. Hey, good morning. Glad you're here. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. And uh, you can begin by turning to the book of First Corinthians. So in your New Testament, First Corinthians, if you don't have your own Bible, you can grab one that's scattered in the pew backs behind you. And uh, turn with me to the last chapter of First Corinthians. First Corinthians 16 is at least where we are going to get started. We'll make our way into Hebrews, and uh, we'll make our way into First Thessalonians, but we'll begin in First Corinthians uh, 16. So we're in the midst of a sermon series, New, Yo- uh, New Love, New Year, talking about the nature of love. And uh, last week we began uh, by looking at the nature of love by seeing four characteristics, four kind of traits, if you will, that characterize our love for one another. And uh, you'll see them on the screen behind me, the four things, hopefully they're fresh on your mind. Last week we saw that love must be sincere, that is it shouldn't be fake, it shouldn't be feigned, but it it should be from the heart. Uh, We see that our love for one another also is a debt from Romans 13, that is it is an obligation. We owe it to one another to love one another. Third, we've seen that it's supernatural, Galatians 5, it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, producing supernatural love for one another. And then fourth, it's variable. That is, it can wane and it can rise, right? It can increase and it can decrease. Well, this morning, we're going to finish up on the nature of love by seeing three more traits, three more traits, three more characteristics of the nature of love, starting off with love is comprehensive. Love is comprehensive. Let's pray. And then we'll dive right into our sermon. Father, thank you for what we have seen uh, in, the f- in the past couple weeks about our love for one another. We are reminded of uh, this new commandment that Jesus has given us, that we should love one another as he has loved us. And we're reminded, Father, of this type of love, that it is not to be fake, but it's to be sincere, that we are to genuinely love one another from the heart, that we owe this to each other, and that we can only do it through your Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we desire that the love in this church body would grow and would increase all the more. And so give us help and grace to fulfill these. And this morning, Father, we pray as we continue to learn about the very nature of the love that we are to have one another, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We pray, Jesus, that you would be made much of and that, Father, you would move in our midst to cause our love for one another to increase and to grow all the more. Help us, we pray. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. So let's begin with uh, our fifth characteristic of the nature of love, and that is that love is comprehensive. Love is comprehensive. It is all-inclusive, if you will. And I see this out of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, specifically verses 13 and 14. But before we get to those verses, I want to set the stage for you just a little bit before we dive into 1 Corinthians. So, in chapter 16, starting in verse 5 and running all the way up to verse 12, which is right before our verses, Paul begins to really wind down his letter. It's a lengthy letter, 16 chapters worth, that Paul writes to the troubled church in the city of Corinth. And here in this section, right before we get to these final commands, these final exhortations, Paul uh, begins to share with them some of his travel plans. He wants to return to them, and he wants to minister to them. But before 
before uh, he can. He's going to send Timothy and their beloved Apollos, and so they should treat both of these brothers uh, with respect and should welcome them in. And so after kind of talking about some travel plans, starting in verse 13 and running through verse 18, Paul closes his long letter with some closing exhortations, some closing commandments, if you will, kind of rapid fire before he gives his final greetings and his benediction. And what we see here in verses 13 and 14 are really uh, five commandments, five kind of rapid fire, short commandments, which really actually serve as a nice summary for the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to know what 1 Corinthians is about, I think these five commands... These five exhortations really form a nice summary. So let's work our way through these five and then focus our attention on the fifth as it has to do with the comprehensive nature of our love for one another. So let's start in verse 13. Paul says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Verse 14. Do everything... Do everything in love, which of course is where we will focus most of our attention. But let's take a look at what Paul has to say in these five closing exhortations. First of all, we are to be on your guard, to be on our guard, right? The New American Standard says to be on the alert, to be on the alert. Uh, The paraphrase of the message says, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open. The word here is actually a picture not only of the absence of sleep, but the idea of the word speaks of a, a determined wakefulness. That is, you are trying with all of your might to stay awake. I don't know if you've ever driven uh, in the wee early mornings or maybe driven all the way through the night, uh, long hours. That is a difficult time, at least it is for me, I don't know about you, uh, to drive. And I've really not done it a whole lot, but there's one, one uh, example, one instance where I drove with a buddy. We took turns. Um, I believe it was for 23 straight hours, roughly. 23 straight hours. Um, we were seniors in college, and we were both going to seminary. And we wanted to check out some seminaries on uh, the East Coast. And so we decided to drive from College Station, Texas, all the way to Raleigh, North Carolina. I believe it's about 23 hours, give take. And uh, we decided, because we were young and spry, that we could do it all the way. And so we did everything that we could do uh, to stay awake, right? We switched, we took turns, uh, we did some of the uh, other tricks, right? We, of course, used coffee and energy drinks and anything that the, uh, that the stores would sell us, right, that would be legal for us to stay awake. We listened to loud music, we turned the, the windows down, and because we were seminary geeks, we listened to sermons to stay awake. Yes, sermons to stay awake. Unlike many of you who listen to sermons to take naps. But um, but we actually did that to stay awake. And we had to have a rugged determination to keep our eyes open, right? Because there was something at the end of our trip that we really valued. We wanted to visit this particular seminary. So what is it that we and the Corinthians are to be on alert for, right? What are we supposed to keep our eyes open for? Well, it's interesting because the same word is used throughout the New Testament of a watchfulness for the return of Christ. And so Paul says here to them and to us that we need to have our eyes open, to keep our eyes peeled, anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus, right? So be on your guard. Have your eyes open. Secondly, secondly, he says, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Given the Corinthians' susceptibility to pagan influences and even to, to false teachers, Paul wisely reminds both them and us 
Because we live in a day where we are susceptible to pagan influence and to false teaching. He says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in your faithfulness, in your profession of faith in Jesus. Third, notice he says, be courageous. He says, be courageous. I actually like the, an older NIV translation better. Because maybe more literally, Paul says, be men of courage. Be men of courage. Or maybe even more literally, act like men. Paul tells the church then, and he tells us today, that we are to act like men. Well, what, what does he mean? How are we supposed to be manly, in a sense, right? Um, well, I think what he's talking about is he is telling them that they need to stop acting like little boys, and they, they need to grow up. They need to act like grown men. Because a few chapters earlier, in chapter 3, he called the, the Christians in that church babies, He said, you guys are baby Christians, right? You poop your pants, you pee your pants, you cry, you have to be spoon-fed, you're little babies. He says, you're mere infants. And so here I think he's telling them, it's an exhortation to spiritual growth. He says, don't stay a baby Christian, grow up in your faith. Fourth, what's the fourth exhortation? He says, be strong. Be strong. He reminds us that we're in a spiritual battle, right? He says, be strong. He said something similar way back in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his power. He says, war, spiritual battle, is not for the weak. So, church, be strong. Be strong in the battle. And fifth, fifth and finally, this is where we're heading. Notice his final exhortation. It's in verse 14. He says, do everything... Do everything in love. The New American Standard, let all that you do be done in love. Again, the the message says, love without stopping. Love without stopping. It shouldn't be lost on us that immediately following his call for us to be manly and for us to be strong, he tells us to be loving, right? The kind of manliness and strength that we're supposed to have is not an aggressiveness or self-assertiveness, but as Morris says, it's strength that demonstrates itself in love. And did you notice, what is the scope of our love for one another to be? What did he say there in verse 14? Do some things in love? Is that what he says, church? That's not what he says. He says do everything, right? Do all things in love. And so when I say love is comprehensive, This is what I mean. Our love for one another is to be comprehensive. There is no area of life, no person, no thought, no action that is off of its radar. Again, Morris, I think, explains this beautifully. He says, nothing is outside of its scope. That is our love for one another. He said, we should not overlook the significance of the word in. Right? Do everything in love. He says, love is more than an accompaniment of Christian actions. He says, it is the very atmosphere. The very atmosphere in which the Christian lives and moves and has his being. He's saying that love should be the air that we breathe here at Grace Bible Church. He's saying it's like like the water that a fish swims in. It is our very environment. A few months ago, we had the uh, privilege of taking care of one of our neighbor's fish 
and uh, their, their neighbor's fish was named Morris, and a uh, cute little betta fish, I think. Uh, and our kids really enjoyed having Morris in our household um, because they don't have any pets, and most likely for a long time, they're not going to have any pets. And so we had a pet for a week, a pet fish. And uh, the kids really enjoyed feeding it, and of course enjoyed watching it, and you know tapping on it, not too much, but tapping on it, uh, uh, you know, a little bit. And uh, one of my daughters, I forget which one, tried to ask a question: How does the fish breathe in the water? Because she kind of was putting two and two together. The fish lives in water, but we don't, and we can't breathe in water, but the fish can. So I tried my best, I think, unsuccessfully, to explain to her how fish breathe air through the water in their gills, and I think she looked at me with a blank stare, but that's okay. Um, I was trying to explain that, you know, water is their environment, right? And so, in in the same way, what Paul is saying here is that love is to be the environment that we as Christians live in, right? It's the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. And so love, it's comprehensive, right? We are to do all things, everything, Paul says, in love. Secondly, secondly, love not only is comprehensive, but love is communal. Love is communal. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians, go uh, towards the end of your Bible just a little bit until you find the book of Hebrews. Because now I want us to see the communal nature of love from the book of Hebrews. So you can keep on flipping. You get to Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. You get to the Timothys, and uh, you, you might see Philemon. It's a short book. And then you get to the long letter to uh, the church uh, known as Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. Here we see, I think, the communal nature of love. Maybe you've heard the phrase, I'm sure you have, it takes two to tango. So when someone says it takes two to tango, essentially what they mean, of course, is that it takes more than one person to do a particular act, right? It takes two people to do something. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying that love in the church you could say it takes two to love, right? It is a communal affair. We have to have someone to love, right, if we are to love them. And so Christian love by nature is communal, by very definition. So here's the context, right? I want to catch you up on Hebrews chapter 10. Here's where the author has been. The author has uh, come off of a really big section, in fact, running from chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews all the way up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, is one big section. And in that section in the book of Hebrews, the, the author talks about the superiority of Christ as our high priest, he uh, is our intercessor before a holy God, and the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice, how his sacrifice on the cross is far superior than any Old Testament. Testament, Old Covenant sacrifice that could have been offered. So he's making much of Jesus as our high priest and much of Jesus's death for our sins. And so in view of that, in light of what Christ has done, he then shifts gears to apply that, right? In view of his superior sacrifice and in view of his superior priesthood, how were these Jewish Christians and us today, how are we to respond What is an appropriate response to such a great high priest and to such a great sacrifice? Well, he gives us a threefold response. And you see the three responses that we are supposed to have in verses 22 through 25 because he introduces each of the responses with the words, let us, let us. And so let's take a look now at verse 22. He says, number one, response number one, let us draw near to God. 
with a sincere heart and with the, the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Response number one. Response number two, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Response number three, verse 24. And let us consider, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Of course, this last exhortation, this last let us, is where we will focus our attention to see the very communal nature of love, right? He starts with the command. Notice verse 24. He starts with the command in verse 24. Let us consider. Let us think about. Let us spend some time mulling over something. And what is it that we are to consider? Well, we are to consider how we may spur one another on or stimulate one another towards two things. What's the first? Love, right? Love is the first. And the second is what? Good deeds, right? And so he says, this is what we should do. This is our responsibility towards one another. When we come and when we gather and when we are talking over our coffee and donuts and when we're talking on our way out and when we're talking in our Bible studies, right, and in our ministries together, we are to consider, to think about how we can spur one another on towards being better lovers, towards being better people who do good deeds, right? So I am to help you love better. And I'm supposed to help you be better at doing good deeds. And you're supposed to do the same for me. And you're supposed to do the same for each other, right? This is our responsibility towards one another. When I was in high school, I had a friend. He was, he was not in my inner circle of, of best friends, but he was a, he was a de- decent friend. His name was Shay Blunzer. Uh, and people often got us confused because we looked alike. My name's Trey. His name was Shay. It can be confusing, but his name was Shay, and uh, he was a he was a decent friend. He was one of those guys who was let's just call him an adventure lover, kind of a uh, adrenaline junkie, right? And so he kind of went in these six month to a year patterns where he would take up a new hobby. And it usually involved uh, uh, great risk and, and uh, bodily harm. And uh, he would just pursue that for about six months to a year. And then he kind of got, got tired of that and he'd do the next thing. Well, he kind of got in this phase where he was, uh, um, he was a cowboy who was a part of uh, the local rodeo. And so he uh, shared with me one day, I was over at his house, and I was, I was like, dude, why are you doing rodeo, right? You wanna, what do you want to do? And he's like, I want to ride bulls. I said, you want to ride bulls? He said, yeah, it's fun. I'm like, you're crazy. Uh, and so he was showing me all of his gear. And so he had chaps, and he had a big butt, uh, butt, uh, belt buckle, as everybody does in Texas. That's a joke. Not everybody does. But he did. He had a big belt buckle. And he looked like a real cowboy. And he had some other things. He had gloves, you know. But the thing that I remember about his equipment very vividly is he showed me his spurs. So he had cowboy boots, and he had metal spurs attached to the end of his cowboy boots. I had never seen spurs before because 
I wasn't a country boy or cowboy. I didn't, you know, I was like, man, these are, these are what real spurs look like. He's like, yeah. And I said, well, how do they work? And he says, well, they're really simple. They have these things on the end and it's the spur and they're rather, and they're really sharp. And what you do, uh, right when they release you, uh, you know, they open the gate and you're supposed to ride the bull is you kick the bull with your legs and you spur it. And I said, well, that would really hurt it. And he said, that's the point. And I said, why would you want to hurt the bull? And he said, because you want it to kick bigger and, and, and harder. And I was like, wait a minute. You're riding a bull, and you want to spur it on towards greater movement and, and kicking. He's like, yeah, because you get a better score. I'm like, For, you're crazy. You know, that, that was about the end of the conversation. Um, but that's, that's the word that, that the writer of, the, of, of Hebrews uses here. He says, we are to spur one another on. And so in a sense, I'm supposed to wear my cowboy boots to church every Sunday. And when I see you, guess what? I've got some spurs. And I'm supposed to, to spur you, to kick you, right? To, to, to create some movement in your life towards love and towards good deeds. So here are, the, here are the implications, right? Notice what he says in verse 25. What can hinder us from doing this? What can hinder us from doing this in verse 25. In other words, what is an expression of a lack of love for a fellow believer? Well, notice what he says in verse 25. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Here are the implications, twofold. First, the simple implication is that I can't spur you on to love and good deeds if I or you are not showing up to the regular gathering of the body, right? Secondly, then it follows that I am failing to love you when I am not showing up to be a regular part of the fellowship. One commentator by the name of Hughes, he hits it on the head. He says, the failure to love, listen to this, the failure to love shows itself then in selfish individualism. And specifically here, in the habit of some of neglecting to meet together. He says, such unconcern for one's fellow believers argues unconcern for Christ himself and foreshadows the danger of apostasy concerning which our brother, the author, excuse me, is about to issue another earnest warning. So, here's an application for me and for you. Have you ever considered that the reason you and I come to church is not exclusively for our own benefit. Have you thought about that before? Let it sink in. The reason you and I show up on Sunday mornings into a whole host of other gatherings is not exclusively for our own spiritual benefit. Yes, we come to worship God. Yes, we come to give of our money and of our time. Yes, we come to minister. Yes, we come to hear of the scriptures and to grow and to be fed. These are all good things, right? Of course, we come for that, but we don't come for that alone because part of the reason of the gathering of the church here, it's clear in the book of Hebrews, is we are to, to help each other love one another and we can't do that if we're not showing up. So if we're irregular, if we allow other priorities to take our Sundays away from us, not only do we hurt our own spiritual growth, but we hurt the spiritual growth of the person sitting next to you, right? And so love is not only comprehensive, but love is communal. Love is communal. And third, love is innate. I'd like for you now to turn from the book of Hebrews and go backwards in your Bible, just a few chapters, a few books, to the book of 1 
Thessalonians. So if you go backwards a little bit, just a little bit, you'll hit the Timothys, and uh, you will hit Thessalonians. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 is where we will end today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here we see that love, thirdly, is innate. Love is innate. So, let me again set the stage for these verses for you, verses 9 and 10. Basically, the whole first half of the book of 1 Thessalonians is Paul praising the Thessalonians for a whole host of things, and he is explaining why he hasn't returned to minister to them. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3 in a nutshell. In chapters 4 and 5, which are really the applicational chapters of this book, he turns to a couple things to moral exhortations, do this, don't do that, and to doctrinal instruction. Here's what you should believe about this or about that. And he kind of goes back and forth. He forms what I call in chapter 4 and 5 a doctrinal sandwich. It's a doctrine sandwich. You know what a sandwich is? Bread on top, something in the middle, something on the bottom, right? Bread on top, uh, bread top and bottom. So at the very top of, of this sandwich is exhortation, right? And that's where we are. First Thessalonians chapter 4 firm, uh, essentially forms the, uh, the, the top layer of bread, right? It is the moral exhortation. Right in the middle, the, the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5 is the doctrine. He speaks about the rapture, and he speaks about the return of Christ, and our watchfulness in the midst of it. And then in chapter 5, verses 12 through the end, he gets back to the exhortation. Let's take a look at this top layer, this top slice of moral exhortation, if you will, starting in chapter 4. So we're just going to see a tiny bit of it in verses 9 and 10. But here's what he does. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, you need to grow as a Christian. Verses 3 through 8, he talks about sexual morality in the church. Finally, in verses 9 through 12, which is where we are, he speaks of brotherly love. Now, let's take a look at these verses. Verse 9, now, now he writes them, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's, notice the language, family. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So the final characteristic of our love is that it is innate. It is an innate familial love. On the heels of eight verses of detailed instructions about sexual immorality and morality, he has much to say to this church about sexuality. Apparently they needed to hear it. But on the heels of that, he writes these words in verse 9. But about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. Isn't that interesting? He's just given them eight whole verses on sexual morality, but now he wants to speak to them about loving each other, and he says, I really don't have much to say to you about this. I don't really have to instruct you. Well, why is that? Well, it's clear. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So he didn't, he didn't need to teach them to love each other. He didn't need to do it because who had done it? God, right? God had already instructed them. God instructs us to love our fellow believers. Our love for one another is innate. It is innate in the born-again Christian to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a part of who we are. One writer says this, Some instructions for Christians come through their brethren in Christ. Much of it does. But 
He says, other lessons are taught by God himself to his children directly. These things are, are almost intuitively uh, seem right for Christians to do. Loving other Christians is such a lesson. Christians quickly learn that there is a real kinship between believers, he writes, and they relate to other Christians in a way that they do not relate to those outside of God's family. Now, what kind of love are we talking about here? Let's go back to verse 9. Now, about your love. Now, there are several different words in Greek for love. We've seen agape before, but this is a different word. This is the word Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, just like the city up north. And they call it the city of what? Brotherly love, right? Because that's what the word means. Philadelphia means a brotherly, a brotherly sibling, a familial kind of love. And that's the kind of love that he's talking about here. And he says that kind of love, God teaches us. So when we become a part of the family of God, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are born again, our sins are forgiven, and a whole host of things. But one of those things that happens is that God adopts us into his family. He becomes our father, and we become his son or his daughter. And guess what? We're not alone. We have a huge family all over the world of brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we become Christians, there is a familial love. When we meet someone and we find out they're a Christian, I, 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 am, I have affection for them. I am connected to them because they're my brother or they're my sister, right? It is innate. We've seen this in real life. You maybe have seen it in your family to some degree that you, uh, with your siblings or maybe your children, if you have them, uh, that there is an innate sense that they care for one another, right? They, they stick together. They love one another in a normal setting. I recall uh, one instance, and it's been a while ago, um, when I believe our number three child, Sawyer, was hurt. Or maybe she was getting in trouble. I don't know exactly, know the scenario, but I just kind of have this memory of her on the ground, sobbing uncontrollably, face down. She was noticeably upset about something. And I remember Piper, uh, daughter number one, uh, coming up to her and uh, very gently and sweetly kind of wrapping her arms around her, patting her on the back, saying, it's okay, honey, it's okay, dear. It's going to be all right, honey, it's okay, right? Um, Sisterly love, brotherly love, that's how it's supposed to be in the family of God. And so do we see, do you see your fellow brothers and sisters as that, as a brother, as a sister, is our level of commitment and care and concern for those who name the name of Christ, and this is where it gets hard, do we have the same level of commitment and care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we do our physical flesh and blood, brothers and sisters? Because sometimes our love for our physical family can hinder or trump our love for our spiritual family in the church. So what we've seen today are three more things, three more characteristics or traits of the nature of our love. We have seen that uh, love is sincere, it's a debt, it's supernatural and variable, and today we have seen that it's comprehensive. We have seen that it's communal, and we have seen that it is innate. So, I'm going to pray a a blessing over us, and then Jay's going to come and give us some important information as we go. So let's pray, and I'm going to pray a blessing over us from the Scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 3, chapter 12. Let's pray. Paul writes this, and we pray it now. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow 
for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May God, may you strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our, the Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. Lord, make our love increase and overflow, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Stick around, Jay. Come share with us some uh, important information of things, that's, uh, things that are coming up. Thanks.